If you've got your Bible with you or the Pew Bible, I can invite you to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think the last time that I was with you, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm sure you will remember all the points that I preached that day, no doubt. We're looking at chapter 5 this morning or part of chapter 5, but we'll read the whole chapter so we get the context. Let's hear God's word. It's page 1163 for those of you who need the page reference. 1162, verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if the tent which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in a right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. Now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. May God add his blessing to the public reading from his own word. Motivation is one of the buzzwords of this last generation or so. Uh, Some of you are old enough to remember a Mr. Motivator who appeared on our television screens and he was encouraging us to become more active. Or more recently, maybe most of us will be able to remember Joe Wicks. And he again was on our television screens encouraging us to get off the couch and to do a wee bit of running or do a wee bit of exercise to make ourselves more fit during the COVID time. People are always trying to motivate us to do one thing or another. And in business or sport, there's motivational days, there's motivational speakers. Um, One of the outstanding motivators of the last generation was a man by the name of Sir Alec Ferguson. Does anyone know who he is? Some of you may remember him, some of you might like him, some of you might hate him, doesn't matter. He was one of the... uh, Uh, chief motivators uh, during the last number of years in terms of sport. He motivated his players and what he did was he got inside the mind of the players uh, and he asked them about their fathers and their mothers and their grandfathers and their grandmothers. And then when he got that information, he spoke to them quietly and and talked to them about doing things that their grandfathers would be proud of. Uh, and he was able to get the best out of uh, his players. Some of them would never have uh, achieved what they did if it hadn't been for Sir Alec Ferguson. And he was gentle with some, but there was others he lambasted them. And we know of the infamous incident when he threw the boot at the handsome face of David Beckham, much to Victoria's annoyance. But he motivated his players to do the very best. And you know, we all need to be motivated. Uh, We need to be motivated in the Christian life. Uh, You may say, well, I don't need, that's not, I'm not sure about that. Well, Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, do not be weary in well-doing. And you know, sometimes we are weary in well-doing. I can remember speaking to Sunday school teachers who had labored hard uh, week after week after week, year after year, and they were weary because they said to me, we see, we never see anything happening. And I used to try to encourage them that they're doing a very important work of implanting the word of God in the young heart. And you never know that that word, that seed that's planted in the heart, that one day it will bear fruit under repentance. So we do need to be motivated to keep going, keep on keeping on in the Christian life. And in this passage that I read to you, I'm going to concentrate on verse 11 to 17 because I haven't time to go to the end. Uh, But in these verses, I want to suggest that there's three things that should motivate us to keep on going in the Christian life. The fear of the Lord in verses 11 11 to 13 the love of Christ in verse 14 to 15, 
and the power of the Spirit in verses 16 and 17. Let's look at them in turn. Do we see, and hopefully we will be further motivated to go out into the world that needs Christ so desperately. May we be motivated to share him with the people that we meet. First of all, in the fear of the Lord. Well, somebody might say to me, well, is fear a proper motive to work and serve the Lord? Well, yes, it is, because, for example, if a house is on fire and there's people in it, uh, no one would criticize you if you shouted at them to try and come out, because if they don't get out, they're going to die. And that would be the right thing to do. Uh, and fear, fear of death would be a good motivation in that sense for people to move, get out of the house. So for us, fear of the Lord is a proper motive. Verse 11 begins with another, we know, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God and I hope is also known to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is from God. If, if, it's, if we're in our right mind, it is for you. The first question we need to ask is, what is this fear? And in Scripture, there are two types of fear. There's being afraid of God. There's terror of God. Remember the writer of the Hebrews said, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Adam, the first man, we're told that in Genesis 3 it says that Adam hid himself because he was afraid of God. And this fear is usually the fear of someone who's been awakened to their sin but have not yet found rest in Christ. Now that's not the meaning of the word fear here. The other meaning of the word fear is more like reverential awe. It's a bit like um, you don't want to disappoint your master. It's like the fear of hurting someone or disappointing someone. A child doesn't want to disappoint or hurt its father. Now, this is true religion. You remember Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Paul here, he's talking about reverential fear or awe. He, he, he doesn't want to hurt his heavenly father. He doesn't want to disappoint his heavenly father. So what does he do? He says he tries to persuade men. Now what's he talking about here? Well, in Corinth there was a problem. There were some guys uh, that had crept into the church. They were uh, teaching the externals of religion. They were called Judaizers. Uh, and they were highlighting the law as opposed to grace. And they were telling people that they had to do this, that, and the other thing. And as for Paul, they said, you can't trust that boy. He's not really a true apostle. He, he, he can't be trusted. In chapter 1, he said he was going to come to us. He didn't bother. Don't trust him. He's not a true apostle. And some of these people at Corinth were beginning to take this in. And so they were wondering about Paul. They were thinking about the externals. And Paul, no, not sure about him. And so the congregation were being divided for and against Paul. And Paul is saying he, because of 
not wanting to disappoint the Lord, he tries to persuade men. And he's given people the reasons why they can be proud of him. He's given them reasons as to why he can be trusted. And he wants them to join together. He doesn't want them to be divided. The fear of the Lord is what moved him uh, to, to speak and try to persuade people to come together to be at one with each other. So he led this fear of the Lord, led him to persuade them. He wants to talk about the unity of the church. He wants the members of the church to be in harmony. He wants them to understand that he's a true believer, he's a true apostle, and he can be trusted. Jesus, of course, was also concerned about the unity of the church, wasn't he? He prayed for the unity of the church in John chapter 17. Fear of the Lord. We don't want to disappoint God by being divided between each other. How do we apply that today in 2023? Well, let me apply it, for example, to this congregation here. I don't know you, but the question is, are you united together? Believers together in harmony with each other. That's the mind of God. That's the will of God, that you would be one with each other. Do you remember Paul, um, he wrote to the church at, at Philippi, and he said, I plead with Judea, and I plead with Cynthia to agree with each other in the Lord. Can you imagine being in the congregation that morning when Paul's letter was being read, and here's Cynthia over here, and Judea's over here, and suddenly they've been mentioned from the pulpit. My goodness, they would want the earth to swallow them up, wouldn't they? They'd be highly embarrassed. Wonders are a Yodia and a Cynthia in the congregation today, falling out over something stupid. The mind of the Lord is that you become united again as you are in reality in Christ. I suppose a second application is the wider church. I've just come back from America. I have two children that live there. Uh, we were in Memphis, and every street corner is a church with a different name, a different denomination. I don't know how many there were, just too many to count. And it seems to me that the church of Jesus Christ falls out over the, the minor details. Someone uh, is not humble enough, and so they start their own, go their own way, and they start their own denomination. What's the application? Believers in Christ, if we're agreed on the fundamentals, we should have fellowship with others even outside our own fellowship. Take the Baptist denomination as an example. They differ with us over the question of baptism. Who should be baptized and how they should be baptized. But baptism is not a salvation issue. The dying thief was never baptized. You and I, as believers in Christ, we can have fellowship one with the other of the Baptist denomination, and that applies to other denominations, if people are in Christ. If the fundamentals of the faith are there, we're we're one in Christ, and we should extend the hand of fellowship and enjoy fellowship with the believers in Christ. The fear of the Lord, the, the not wanting to disappoint the Lord, led Paul to be concerned for the unity of the church. 
Then second motivation is the love of Christ. Look at verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The first couple of words could be translated either as Paul's love for Christ or Christ's love for Paul. And it's generally accepted, at least I think anyway, that this is referring to Christ's love for Paul because of what he says in verses 14 and 15. In summary, Christ's love for sinners compels them to live for Christ. That's what he's saying in verses 14 and 15. Because of Christ's love, they're compelled to live for him and not for themselves. Verse 14, it talks about one dying for all. That preposition for is a most important word. Uh, and there's been many books written on that word. It's a language that usually speaks about substitution. The idea is for, found in verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The idea of substitution. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You could look at 1 Thessalonians 5 and 10, you could look at Hebrews 2, 9, Luke chapter 22 and 19, I'll give you one more reference. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself the people that are his very own. Here's the idea of substitution. This takes us back to the cross. He died on our behalf or in our place. That's what Calvary is about. That's the glory of Calvary. Jesus dying in the place of sinners. He died the death that we should have died. The penalty for our sins was borne by him. He died in our place. Now Paul came to see this. Originally he he thought that Jesus was cursed by God because the Bible in Deuteronomy says, Cursed is anyone who hung on the tree. And of course he was right in part. That's what the Bible says. Cursed is anyone on the tree, that hangs on a tree. But what Paul came to see was <coughs> that Jesus was cursed, but it was on his behalf. It was instead of him. He died instead of Paul. Jesus took the punishment instead of punishing him. Strangely, this is questioned today even in some evangelical circles. I was amazed listening to a, a podcast just Friday night. So-called evangelical leaders saying that 
No, God is a God of love and therefore he's not wrathful and he's not angry and he can't curse anyone. My goodness, this is the glory of the cross. That Jesus on the cross was hanging there and taking the wrath of God. Instead of me taking the wrath of God, instead of you taking the wrath of God. This is the, the glory of the gospel. And Paul says in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. It captures us. It compels us. It, it controls or governs us. Paul's love coerces or presses upon us. Do you remember the, the, the same words used in the gospel where the crowds were pressing upon Jesus so he had to get into a boat in order to teach them? Remember the lady who was, had the problem with the blood for 12 years and it says that she came up behind Jesus and touched the hem of his garment and Jesus turned and said, Who touched me? And the, the disciple says, What are you talking about? See how the crowd are pressing against you. Same word. And Paul sees the love of Christ as pressing upon him, compelling him, controlling him, capturing him. The love of Christ became the governing influence of his life. And so as a result, verse 15, he says that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This became the, the, the crucial thing that changed the whole life of Paul. He now belonged to, to, to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body in the tree. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, Titus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. This is the purpose of the cross. And the love of Christ presses upon us and shows us what Jesus has done. It compels us, takes over our lives. There was a guy called Count von Zinzendorf he was a, an extremely wealthy German and one day he was taken to a museum and they showed him a picture of Christ dying on the cross. And there was an inscription in Latin underneath the picture which is translated into English as I have done all for thee. What hast thou done for me? And Zinzendorf tells us that the love of Christ broke into his heart that day. He thought that if Jesus, the Son of God, would come and do such a thing for him who didn't deserve it, then he would give his everything for God. He was constrained. He was uh, controlled by the love of Christ. And he set up the Moravian Missionary Society that had profound effect for a hundred years, one of which we know was they were instrumental in the conversion of John Wesley. The love of Christ controls us. Can I apply that to you if you're not a believer this morning? Ask yourself, why was Jesus hanging on a Roman cross? It was reserved for criminals. 
But scripture tells us and history tells us that Jesus was without sin. Why was he dying there therefore? He was dying to show his love for sinners like you. Think about the cross. Meditate upon it. See what he has done for a sinner like you. And what can you do in response? Give your life to him. Respond in repentance and faith. And embrace him as he's freely offered in the gospel. But if you're a believer this morning, how do you apply this to us? Well, sometimes people talk about moving on from Calvary, but to deeper things, that's nonsense. You don't move on. You move back to Calvary and you see the love of Christ supremely there. But I wonder our hearts I wonder, do we still love Jesus? Or is there a need for us to have our, our love rekindled? Do you remember the church at Ephesus? Uh, Revelation chapter 2, it was some church, I can tell you. It says in, the, in chapter 2, they were commended for their orthodoxy, sound in doctrine. They were commended for their deeds. They were involved in so many things. They were commended for their perseverance and for their enduring hardship and not growing weary. They were some church. But, says Jesus, they had lost their first love. Way back in the Old Testament, the church had lost their love in Jeremiah 2. God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. I wonder, is that true of you? You used to love well, but you've now lost your love. It needs to be rekindled. Brethren, what Revelation 2 says is that God said to that church that had lost their first love, repent. Get back to where you were. I remember still the morning after my conversion, I was only a, a boy looking out over the fields. I'm coming from a Presbyterian background and I remember a hymn that I'd learnt in Sunday school. Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green, something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen, birds with gladder songs or flow, flowers with deeper beauty shine, since I know as now I know, I am his and he's mine. I can remember that, thinking Christ is mine, he's my saviour, and I love him. Sometimes I wonder I wish I could get that love again back as I had then. Under the true of you, spend some time this afternoon, meditate and reflect on the cross and have your love rekindled. Third motivation is verses 16 and 17, the power of the Spirit. Bear with me and I'll show you where I'm getting the title. The other two titles are straight from the text, Fear of the Lord and the Love of Christ. Verse 16 states the negative. It says, <clears throat> From now on, therefore, we regard 
no one according to the flesh or the text that I'm using uh, is it says in verse 16 so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view now we all know what this means don't we we used to judge people according to their the color of their skin or their background or their religion or whether they were affluent or not affluent we judge them according to the flesh and Paul is saying in verse 16 I once judged Paul like Christ like that as well I regarded Jesus as an imposter, a rebellious stirrer, a hater of God, a dangerous messianic pretender. That was how I looked at Jesus according to the flesh. But then after the Damascus road, I saw Jesus differently. I saw him as the son of God. I saw him as resurrected to life. I saw him as the Lord of life. Verse 17 is the positive. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. If I had asked you this morning, um, how would you describe yourself if you're a believer? And some of you would probably say, well, I'm a Christian. And that is a biblical word. Or some of you would say, I'm a believer. And again, that's a biblical word. Some of you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's true as well. Do you know what Paul's favorite term to describe a Christian was? In Christ. If any man's in Christ. He, he uses that term time and time and time again. Let me give you a couple of references so you can get a flavor of it. In <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Therefore there is now... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 is because of him that you are in Christ. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. Galatians 5 and verse 6 it says, For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Ephesians 1 and verse 13, and you also were included in Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's just some of the references. Every man and woman born is born into sin because we go back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us that we inherit his sinful nature. Bible tells us, therefore, that we are in Adam. And now Paul says, the Christian is no longer in Adam, he's now in Christ. And this is where he wants to describe a Christian, a person who's been transferred from one kingdom to another, in Adam, now in Christ. A Christian has got a new position. But not only that, they're a new creation. What does it mean when it says you're a new creation? Does that mean that you're a wee bit better than your uh, neighbor next door who's a pagan? Or does it mean you've turned over a new leaf and you're slightly better than somebody else in some way or other? No, no. A Christian is a brand new person. Creation takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. God created the universe out of nothing. So he has created 
you in Christ, a new person. And it's the Spirit of God that does that. Because Paul tells us we're dead in our transgressions and sins. We're like a corpse. We can't do anything for ourselves. But then we're born again. What does born again mean? It means that God, by the Spirit, plants life into our dead hearts. And therefore we're enabled to embrace Jesus Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. That's the work of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. People become Christians because of the work of the Spirit. How does that motivate us? Well, two ways. Firstly, it shows us what we are. We're not just slightly better people. We're not just a wee bit more moral most of the time people. A miracle has taken place in your heart and life. God the Spirit has regenerated us, planted life within us. Do you realize, Christian friend, this morning, your new position in Christ? It's not that you have decided to follow Jesus. I hope that is your experience now. But that's not what you originally, you didn't suddenly think to yourself, well, this Christianity business is not a bad idea. I'll decide and I'll follow Jesus. No. God the Spirit awakens you and you respond and you trust Christ. You're a new person. And here, here's the other thing about motivation. We're called to be ambassadors. Uh, verse 20. We're called to be those who spread the good news. But here's the thing. If it depended on me doing that, I've made a bad job of it. I'm feeble in terms of my evangelism. But it doesn't depend on me. I'm just to be a signpost. I'm just to be one pointing to Jesus. I'm one that's to lift Jesus up. And it's the Spirit of God that takes the feeble words and applies them to sinners' hearts. Do you need motivated? 2023, just entered the second quarter of this year. How's your motivation? Are you, still, are you weary? Hopefully, as a result of looking at this, you'll be encouraged that the, the fear of the Lord, the not wanting to disappoint the Lord, will keep you going. The love of Christ, viewing him on the cross, dying in your place. Hopefully that will be motivation for you to go out. And the work of the Spirit, it's his job to open hearts. It's our job just to be signposts to the Savior. May we indeed be a people that are motivated to serve the Lord with gladness and to seek to win people for Jesus that they might come to know our glorious Savior. Let's join together in prayer. Whatever you're comfortable with, whether standing or sitting, that's, that's fine. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you again. We thank you for the, the wonder of, of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the wonder of the love of God, that he 
sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place. Uh, He was condemned in order that we might go free. We thank you for the glory of this gospel. We thank you how it's changed us and how it is continuing to change us. And may that be the case as we continue to live our lives in this world where outside there's darkness and all kinds of corruption. Lord, may you enable us to be those who are light in the darkness and may we be those who will want to take opportunities just to signpost others to Jesus that they may find a refuge for their hearts and souls. Thank you, Lord, for your, the wonder of your grace towards us and we want to pray for the congregation here and want to pray for those that need you most at this time. We especially remember those who are uh, sad at the passing of loved ones Uh, We ask, Lord, that grace would be given. There's human sadness, and that is uh, perfectly natural and normal. Help them in their grief to not mourn as those that have no hope, but to rejoice that it's better for the believer who's passed on. It's gain for them, and they can rejoice in that. Command any of the congregation who are perhaps not able to come to worship in this house. Maybe they're watching online. We commend them to you if they're laid aside in illness. We ask, Lord, for your strength. We thank you for the the doctors and nurses and, and those who have been given skills and gifts. And we pray that they would be able to use those gifts and skills in order to alleviate our pain. So bless those that are laid aside. Think also of, of uh, those that have left our shores and have gone overseas to be uh, your workers, uh, to serve you in distant lands. We pray, Lord, that your presence will be a reality. We know that some of our believing uh, brothers and sisters uh, are in parts of the world where uh, there's persecution uh, and they're being downtrodden and some even are paying with their lives. We ask, Lord, for grace to be given. Remember the church in Ukraine today, uh, over a year after the war has broken out. Many people displaced, many worried, fear all around. Lord, a congregation scattered, we commend those people to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would draw near to them. We ask, Lord, that in your mercy, this war would soon come to an end. We bring these our prayers to you in and through the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each of us now and always. Amen.